Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed welcome back to forum I'm Alexis Madrigal. Eighty years ago this week, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which led to the internment of tens of thousands of Japanese Americans. Many in the Bay Area community were eventually sent to camps in Topaz, Utah. This week, we're remembering their stories. Joining us this morning is Ruth Sasaki, editor and curator of Topaz Stories, a project that's gathered many memories and artifacts about the internment. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you, Alexis. Thanks for inviting me. So maybe we can begin with you telling us about your mother, Tomiko Takahashi, and her longtime San Francisco family. Where did they live and what did they do in the city? Well, my grandfather uh, immigrated to San Francisco in 1896, and he went into business. So by the time of the uh, removal to Tanfran, he was a business owner of a store on Grand Avenue, which, of course, he had to liquidate um, for one-tenth of its worth. Um, so the family had been in San Francisco for you know over 40 years. Um, and my mother was born here and grew up here, and she actually spent her entire life in San Francisco, except for the three years in Topaz. Oh, wow. So my understanding is that most Bay Area Japanese families, when they were interned, were initially sent to Tenforin, like your family was in San Bruno. And your mother and other people kind of organized schools there and tried to sort of create a little pocket of normalcy there. That's correct. Um, the War Relocation Authority uh, did some made efforts to create schools for the you know elementary and high school age children, but there was really nothing for the the pre kindergarten age. And my mother, um, as a graduate of UC Berkeley with a degree in education, was really concerned about the impact that um, you know growing up in such a uh, hostile, <laughs> unfriendly, and sort of sensory deprived environment would have on these one to five-year-olds because those are very formative years for children and those experiences will inform their personality development and socialization. So it was actually a couple of uh, Nisei women, graduates of Mills College in Oakland, um, Kei Uchida, who was the sister of the author Yoshiko Uchida, and Grace Fuji, who organized uh, many of the Nisei college graduates to form preschool classes for these toddlers. And they did that in Tanfram. 
and they continued their efforts in Topaz. And of course, they had to start from scratch, mm. working with empty barracks that had no furniture. Um, and so they set up an entire uh, preschool system in Topaz, which uh, my mother became the director of that in 1943. Do you know what the journey was like from San Bruno out to Utah? Well, um, you know, I, I did have some letters that my mother saved from friends um, when she was in camp. And they would communicate back and forth to each other because, you know, the, the ones who were the vanguard, like the ones who were forcibly removed from San Francisco first, would write back to their friends who were still in San Francisco to, to tell them what conditions were like. And also, you know, from Topaz to friends in Tanfran, and there is a letter from one of her friends, which she actually wrote on the train. And it was, um, it was a long ride. It was, they had to keep the shades drawn. They had no idea really what they were headed for. And um, this particular friend remembered that the breakfast that was served was mm -hmm. so delicious <laughs> compared mm -hmm. to the Tan Fran food and that the Pullman porters who were, you know, the, the Black uh, Union were so nice to them. She was so grateful. Yeah. That's such a heartbreaking part of that letter. And then they arrive in Topaz and the conditions were pretty brutal out there. I mean, one of your mother's friends wrote, what a hotbed of extra fine dust, the kind that flies up like smoke screen and takes forever to settle. And these were Bay Area people who had grown up with our 70-degree Februaries, and suddenly they're out in the middle of nowhere in Utah. Was your mother's family able to establish at least some of their social ties at the camp because so many Bay Area Japanese Americans were, had been sent there? They did uh, have some friends that they were in contact with. Um, you know, people got spread out all over the place, though. Camp was about a, maybe a mile square. And um, so they weren't, friends were not necessarily living nearby. But um, yeah, they did reestablish and uh, stay in touch with some of their network from the San Francisco area. Yeah. You know, they're, was in your archive, there's a telegram from your father's mother who lived near Hiroshima. Could you just tell us a little bit about that telegram, which is sort of very short, but, but heartbreaking? Well, at the time, uh, the Red Cross was forwarding telegrams to people who had been incarcerated because people in Japan, um, you know, did not know how to reach their relatives, family members, or friends. And um, so my mother told me that my, my father's mother, who had met, you know, my mom and her mom when they visited Japan, sent a telegram asking how they were, where they were, and expressing, you know, that she was so worried for them. And my grandmother, the, the telegram eventually found my family, my mom's family in Topaz. But the terrible irony is it's my dad's mother who did not survive the war because she lived mm -hmm. in Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're talking with Ruth Sasaki 
editor and curator of Topaz Stories, a storytelling project remembering the Japanese-American incarceration. This week marks 80 years since Japanese-Americans began to be interned by the U.S. government. We're wondering what questions you have for Ruth Sasaki, or do you yourself have a personal or family story to share about this time? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Ruth Sasaki, I'd love to know how your mother's white friends responded to what was happening to her. They, uh, she had friends in San Francisco, having gone to school there through through her childhood, um, who wrote to her and corresponded. And there was one who actually was almost like a clearinghouse because Japanese Americans themselves did not necessarily know where their friends were who did not get sent to Tanfran. And so one friend wrote to my mom and told her she had heard from another friend, mutual friend who was in Pomona and gave her the address. And um, they also, you know, one of her friends came to visit her in Tanfran and um, my mom never forgot the image of her coming in her cardigan and her pearls and her, her heels, you know, walking over the train tracks to uh, visit with my mom through the fence. Other friends offered to, you know, help. And one actually did some shopping for my mother and and sent her things that she asked for. So people were really supportive. And I think they were just, they just felt terrible about what was going on, but they didn't feel there was anything they could do beyond these small acts of kindness. You know, from your mother's stories and those you've curated for Topaz Stories, what have you learned about what daily life was like at the camps? That's a very good question. Um, it's There's so many different kinds of stories, and I think it depends a lot on, you know, how old people were and um, other things. So for many of the children, I think their parents protected them and tried to create a semblance of normalcy. So a lot of the memories of the kids are, if not happy ones, at least, you know, sort of typical childhood ones, getting up to mischief and the games they played and the toys that the Issei men made for them. As you get older, some of the older Nisei, um, they, they were concerned about jobs. They wanted to work. They wanted to do whatever they could, uh, you know, to help their families. Um, some of them actually resettled out of the camp to make money. Um, and then the Issei, um, their voices, we don't hear as much from them, partly because a lot of them spoke Japanese. And um, they had been the community leaders, you know, before the evacuation, so-called evacuation, but because of the uh, WRA and you know all of all of that, they were pretty much replaced by the Nisei generation who spoke English. And so for them, it was a terrible transition. Um, a lot of them had were used to working very hard, and you know, and then suddenly they're sitting in the middle of the desert with nothing to do. So it was a constant morale problem, I think. 
And I think um, a, a lot of people dedicated themselves to trying to keep that morale up, either through entertainment or um, other other education or other. Someone, uh, one of my contributors, her dad formed um, a Japanese library so that there would be mm. reading materials for uh, people who spoke and read Japanese. So it really, there's really a diversity of um, daily life experiences. But I think one thing I read in almost every story is how much sweeping was involved because of the dust. <laughs> right. Right. Like, yeah. As soon as as soon as you cleaned up, then there would be a dust storm, and you'd have to start all over again. So, and then of course the extremes in weather, you know, the snow and the ice. My mom had to walk to visit preschool spread out all over the camp, regardless of the weather. So that means, you know, really hot, dusty summers or snowy, icy winters. Did your mom talk with you about this time and sort of share the letters and, and photographs from her? Or did she kind of tuck it away? She kind of packed it away. Um, we found a box labeled Topaz in her basement after she passed away. And that's where we found the letters. And um, actually, many she had kept these scrapbooks of art mm. by some of the preschool toddlers. And um, Dana Shu, an anthropologist and oral interviewer from Sonoma State University, is actually tracking down those toddlers because each drawing has their name and their age. And she's finding, she's found over 20 of them and she's interviewing them. Oh, and, wow reuniting them with the paintings or drawings that they did in Topaz. It's, it's really an incredible project. Wow. You know, knowing what you know about what happened to Japanese Americans and your family, how did your sense growing up of what the United States was or what it represented, like, how did that change as you came to learn more about Topaz and the internment? Well, you know, I grew up, uh, I was born after the war, and I grew up in the integrated Richmond district in San Francisco. And at that time, I think we all operated under the illusion that America was a melting pot. And there were some advantages to that. Um, I had friends from all different backgrounds. But the disadvantages, I think, were that we didn't really know um, each other's backgrounds and histories we all kind of came together at school and tried to melt <laughs> to blend in. So um, I think knowing more about the Japanese American history and the history of long history of anti-Asian uh, discrimination along the West Coast that led up to the incarceration has given me a much broader perspective. And I realized that, you know, Things like the incarcerate targeting of, of groups of people based on their national origin or race or religion, that's nothing new in this country, and it continues today. So that was one of the reasons why we felt such an urgency to share these stories, because we do want people to remember the very personal and human consequences of injustice. And um, I think the, the reason that the Nisei started speaking up and sharing their stories was that they do not want a repetition of history. 
We have some comments coming in. Scott asks, can the guests provide guidance on the language used to refer to this time? Is it relocation, internment, or concentration? That's a really great question. Um, the government had a whole set of euphemisms um, like relocation, assembly centers, internment, to refer to what happened in World War II. And those were really meant to portray a certain picture of what was going on. Um, I think many people in the Japanese American community today prefer to use the terms detention, forced removal, concentration camp, etc., because that's actually what they were. You know, internment refers to the incarceration of enemy aliens. Well, two thirds of the people incarcerated were American citizens. So that term is not accurate, but in the public's eyes, that makes it more acceptable. You know, if you're locking up enemy aliens, well, that's, maybe that's okay, right? So um, that's my comment on the, mm-hmm. the language. I think language is really important. In the Topaz stories, I preserve the language used by the contributors themselves. And many of them use the WRA terminology because that is the terminology that's been used for decades. And for example, if you're Googling, the Japanese-American right. internment is the one that's going to get the most hits, right? Right. Not the incarceration. So Another, I hope that answers the question. No, that was a beautiful answer. Thank you. Kimberly writes, I know of someone in Half Moon Bay whose grandparents had their farm taken away from them before they were interned. That property is now considered open space and owned by San Mateo County. The county should give that property back to the family. And we know that there's been some limited redress of some of the harms that were done during this incarceration and forced removal. But there's still more to be done, right, Ruth Sasaki? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the the reparations and the, um, the apology by the government, I think for many Japanese Americans, the apology was like the most meaningful part of that because the reparations um, were, were a very nice gesture but really they didn't even begin to make up for the losses that were suffered. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the, what needs to be continue to happen is money put into education. Um, this recent rise in anti-Asian violence that began or that sort of peaked mm-hmm. last year, um, that shows us that you know, no matter how many generations our families have lived here, we're still viewed as foreigners and, you know, treated as though we don't belong. So we need to continually educate and remind people of who we are and of our long history in this country. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Ruth Sasaki, editor and curator of Topaz Stories, a storytelling project remembering the Japanese-American incarceration. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you. This week marks 80 years since the U.S. government began the forced removal of Japanese Americans to camps, and we're going to have more on that later this week. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.